This is Retirement Lifestyle Advocates Radio. I am your host, Dennis Tubergen. Glad you decided to listen in today. Hey, uh, you'll want to stay tuned. I have joining me on today's program best-selling author Harry Dent. Harry's an economist. Uh, if you're a stock investor, Harry has some short-term good news for you and a long-term caution. You'll want to stay tuned for that. Harry joins me in the second and third segments of today's program. And if you happen to be a new listener and you're not yet a subscriber to our weekly free Portfolio Watch newsletter in which we analyze what's going on in the markets and in the economy, uh, you'll want to go sign up for that. This newsletter is free. It's delivered every Monday at 5 o'clock. And all you have to do to subscribe is go to rla.yourportfoliowatch.com and let us know uh, your name and email, and we will be glad to add you to the list. We do not share your information, uh, nor do we spam you. You just get the newsletter once a week, every Monday at 5. Again, if you'd like to sign up for our free Portfolio Watch newsletter, just go to rla.yourportfoliowatch.com. You know, in this segment, I want to talk to you a bit about normal. Uh, and the conversation that I'm going to have with you in this segment is really a preview of an article that I am writing for our main newsletter, which many of you get. This is our written newsletter that's delivered via old-fashioned mail titled the You May Not Know Report. And the title of the article is, Is This the New Normal? And it has to do with interest rates and really money policies and ultimately the effect that this will have on you. Namely, what effect will it have on your savings and the purchasing power of your savings? Now, despite all the talk last year about getting back to normal as far as interest rates were concerned, the opposite is happening as we suggested that it would. Now, when you think about interest rates, obviously since the financial crisis, we've been in a period or a climate where interest rates have been kept artificially low. So when you ask the question, what is normal? It's really a hard question to answer because it seems like normal is changing. Now, if you've been a longtime listener to RLA Radio, you know that it's never been historically normal to create currency or to create credit out of thin air if the environment in which you find yourself is economically healthy. Bottom line is printing money never happens if things are healthy, economically speaking. This is borne out when you review thousands of years of history and look at monetary policy over history. Money creation has only occurred when economic conditions get desperate. More specifically, money creation only happens when debt levels reach a point that they are utterly and completely unsustainable. Now, in our financial system, there is a couple ways that money creation has been accomplished. In more normal times, again, to use that word, low interest rates 
help to create money. Now, let me explain why that is for those of you that may not be familiar with this. If you go put money into your bank, your bank has a reserving requirement of 10%. So your bank has to hold back or reserve 10% of each deposit that you make, and the other 90% can be loaned out. So, for example, if you were to deposit $100,000 into your bank, your banker would need to reserve 10% or $10,000. The other $90,000 could be loaned to another bank customer. Now, let's say, for discussion's sake, that a bank customer borrowed that $90,000 that the banker could loan out from your deposit. And let's say they borrowed the $90,000 to buy a piece of property. Your $90,000 would be loaned to the customer. They would buy the property which means that customer would be in possession of that $90,000 just long enough to hand it off to the seller of the property. Now, presumably, the seller of the property would deposit the $90,000 into her bank, and the seller's banker, who works under the same reserving rules as your banker operates, would reserve 10% or $9,000 and loan out the other $81,000 to another customer of the bank. The process would continue. Now, according to the New York Federal Reserve Bank's website, a $100,000 deposit into a bank can expand into a million dollars if money keeps moving. Now, it's important to understand that money moves when people borrow. In other words, money is created as people borrow, and the faster they borrow, the faster money is created. Historically speaking, again, in more normal times to use that word, when the Federal Reserve wanted to jumpstart the economy, the bank would expand the money supply by reducing interest rates. Lower interest rates enticed people to borrow and made money move faster, which in turn created more money. And conversely, if the Federal Reserve wanted to slow things down like they did in the early 80s, as many of you remember, interest rates were very high. The prime rate was 21%. Not much money is created through borrowing when interest rates are 21% because who wants to pay interest rates of that level? Back in the late 70s and early 80s, then Federal Reserve Chair Paul Volcker put interest rates at a level that were high enough that inflation was brought under control simply because people didn't borrow and the money supply contracted. Then we had the financial crisis of a little more than a decade ago. Real estate prices crashed, stocks collapsed. The economy sunk into what is now referred to as the Great Recession. Now, the Fed attempted to do what it always had done to get the economy going again. They reduced interest rates. In fact, they reduced interest rates effectively to zero. What happened? Absolutely nothing. And here's why. If you think about this, it will make perfect sense to you. 
If you can't afford another payment, does it matter what the interest rate on the new loan is? If you can't afford another payment, does it matter if the interest rate on the new loan is 0%? See, collectively at that time, Americans just couldn't afford another loan payment. That's why reducing interest rates to near 0% did nothing. So Ben Bernanke, the Federal Reserve Chair at the time, decided to print money. After he outlined the proposed policy in a speech in which he said he would drop money from helicopters if he had to, he earned the nickname Helicopter Ben. Now, when you hear analysts today talk about the growth of the balance sheet of the Federal Reserve, what they're really talking about is how much money the Fed created out of thin air, or how much credit, to be more accurate, the Fed created out of thin air. For example, when the Federal Reserve, under the leadership of Mr. Bernanke, printed money, the Fed used the newly created money to buy mortgage-backed securities and government bonds from banks. The Fed referred to this process as quantitative easing, or they said they were engaging in bond purchases. Bottom line is this, when the Fed buys an asset from the bank, it has to create money to do it. And historically speaking, whenever money printing starts, it always continues. That's why when central bankers around the world stated last year they would begin to raise interest rates back to normal, we were highly skeptical. Turns out that skepticism was well-founded. So now it seems like we're into this process for the long term. We have resources on our website to help you navigate this. You can visit retirementlifestyleadvocates.com to get more information. Just click on the resources section. I'll be back after these words. Dennis Tubergen here, host of the Retirement Lifestyle Advocates radio program. Thank you for listening. I'd like to invite you to take advantage of a free resource that we have for our listeners. It's a weekly market and economic update that we call Portfolio Watch. It's a free newsletter delivered by email every Monday at market close. In it, we analyze market activity and give you a unique perspective on current economic conditions. To get the weekly Portfolio Watch report delivered to you each week free, just visit rla.yourportfoliowatch.com. That's rla.portfoliowatch.com. In Portfolio Watch, we track market and economic activity every week and monitor and update our forecast for your money. The website again, rla.yourportfoliowatch.com to get your free subscription. The website again, rla.yourportfoliowatch.com. Welcome back to RLA Radio. I am your host, Dennis Tubergen. I'm very pleased to have joining me once again uh, on the program, returning guest, Mr. Harry Dent. Uh, Harry uh, is a best-selling author, written many, many books over the years, uh, most recent being Zero Hour, that if you haven't read, I would encourage you to pick it up. Uh, you can also go get Harry's free newsletter by visiting harrydent.com. That website, again, is harrydent.com. I'd encourage you to check that out as well. And, Harry, welcome back to the program. Yeah, nice to be back, Dennis. Well, Harry, let me jump in because uh, we were talking a bit before we started recording here that uh, it seems we have uh, central banks around the world over the last six to eight months or so that 
have all, although not quite in unison, uh, started to tighten and then do an about-face with the most recent being Mr. Powell here as the stock market declined. And now it looks like uh, the Fed's going, uh, you know, maybe not full steam ahead, but close to that, uh, back to easy money policies. So uh, what's your comment? Yeah, you know, people are saying, oh, you know, Powell's powering to Donald Trump. That's not what happened here. The stock market did correct substantially for the first time in a long time, down 24% for the tech stocks, 20% for the broad market. But more important, around the world, industrial production growth in Europe, Italy's in an official recession, Germany is, is looks like it's in a recession, and they're supposed to hold up Europe. China's been slowing, and, and the China's numbers are just garbage, you know, that the fact that it's always somewhere around six and a half percent and they only go down by a tenth of percent, that's baloney. They control their numbers. They fake their numbers. China is slowing. This trade war is hurting them more than us. That's what Powell was reacting to. Powell was saying, gosh, yeah, why should we be continuing to raise rates or and why should we continue to sell off our bonds, which is the worst thing for the markets? And, of course, the best thing for me to counter the bubble uh, and to get back in balance. But, it, but, you know, so he's having a natural reaction, and Japan never let their, their foot off the brakes. Europe started to, and now they're saying, like you said, oh, no, 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 we'll just kind of keep it, um, you know, mildly accommodative. And, and the U.S., and now Trump's saying, hey, we should not only stop raising rates, we should lower them. We should not just stop selling our bonds. We should buy them again, you know, with, with quantitative easing and stuff. So, Trump, unfortunately, you know, he, he campaigned on the big, fat, ugly bubble of Obama and, 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 the, and the Federal Reserve and stuff. And now he's pouting the bubble and pumping it up more than anybody with tax cuts and calling for the Fed to get accommodated again. But that is the trend. And, and the markets like it. And the markets are going to like it even more if we finally get a trade deal with China. It's not going to be a long-term deal. China's got a, a big fight here long-term with the U.S. and wants to be number one and doesn't want to cower to us. But right now, they kind of need it. So, you know, any trade deal, you know, I think the markets are going to go to spectacular new highs, not just slight new highs, because this is the final orgasmic stage of the bubble. I, I you know, I've been warning about the bubble bursting for years, but when Trump got elected by surprise in late 2016, I'm like, no, I'm sorry, this is this is the orgasmic phase. This is the final blow-off bubble because tax cuts. Tax cuts are the only thing that Trump quantitative easing. Quantitative easing is printing money out of thin air, throwing it into the financial system, which ends up into speculation and stocks and real estate and financial assets and creates bubbles. And uh, but but giving tax breaks to companies just leverages profits and leverages the trend of companies buying back their own stocks. I've, People don't know, Dennis, this is actually embarrassing and the stupidest thing ever happened in history. Ninety-some percent of all stock, net stock buying since 2009, when they started quantitative easing and pouring free money in the economy, has come from companies buying back their own stocks, not from institutional investors who've been net sellers, not from retail investors who've been off and on but neutral and still aren't in this market strongly. And foreign investors have been a slight positive, 90-some percent, companies buying their own stocks, while governments issue record amounts of debt and buy back their own bonds to float the debt, number one, and number two, to keep interest rates 
two percentage points lower than they would be long term to be able to finance that debt. How can how can Japan afford a 260 percent debt to GDP for their federal debt? Because they have zero interest rates. That's how they afford it. And they made that artificially through printing three times as much money compared to their economy than we have. So this is more the same. Yes. The Fed was starting to tighten. Other central banks were considering tightening. And now that is off the table and the markets love it because the markets are on crack and that's the crack. Free money. We want more of it. And they're happy. So the market is going to go up until they blow and probably later this year at 10,000 on the Nasdaq. 33,000 on the dollar, my approximate targets, higher than anybody on Wall Street today. So Mr. Bear is bullish because we're in this final bubble stage. So Harry, yeah, you, you mentioned a couple of things that I'd like to go back and, and talk about because both are, both are finite actions. I mean, you can only, history tells us you can only print money for so long and the, the more you print, the more you need to print to get uh, what what is hopefully a desired outcome. And then secondly, corporations can only buy back a certain amount of their own stock. I mean, both of those are going to be, I would say, temporary drivers to the market. So uh, you say later this year, what well, what does this correction look like when, when, when these factors, you know, when you just can't do this anymore? Well, well, first thing, the reason I say later this year, this uh, any bubble is progressive. So the first 4,000 points in the NASDAQ after the 2009 bottom took six years to create 4,000 points. The next 4,000 points came in two years, and now this time, 4,000, that's how I get my Dow on NASDAQ 10,000 forecast from the December lows. The next 4,000 points is going to come in a year or a little bit less. So it's getting so progressive, I don't see how the bubble, because if it's going to keep going until the election in 2020, another year, well, then then, then we'd have another 4,000, another 4,000 points again. I mean, the NASDAQ would be at 30,000 or something. I mean, that's just not, I mean, I'm, I'm sorry, uh, 15 or 20,000. That's just not going to happen, I don't think. But so it's getting very progressive, which is another sign of, of the late stage. So um, that uh, now, you know, that that Trump wants is going to have to keep this bubble going or he's dead. I mean, it's now he's vested in the bubble. He cut taxes. He's telling the Fed not only to stop tightening, but to ease and get more accommodative. He's pushing this bubble with everything he's got. So he's going to get credit for this bubble. Um, and when it goes down, there's no way. If it goes down in 2020, when I think the most likely crap, first crash year is, then there's no, there's no way he's going to get reelected. Anybody would get reelected. And Herbert Hoover was the outside businessman who came in in, in, in January 1929 and one year later saw the greatest crash in history on his watch, and he had a landslide loss. So there's no way you get reelected. But Trump is going to want to keep this going through 2020, and he's going to try everything. So there is a possibility that this thing could go into late 2020, but I, I, I just don't see it being possible uh, given the exponential progression at this point, stocks would have to be at 50 times or something crazy. And then, you know, at some point, the bubble blows for no reason. If you're just joining us, we're chatting today with Mr. Harry Dent. Harry's most recent book is Zero Hour, and you can get Harry's free newsletter by going to the website harrydent.com. Uh, let's go back and talk about this uh, potential trade deal with, with China, Harry. Uh, you, you mentioned that the trade war is hurting China more than us, but 
Uh, whenever you start seeing these trade wars, don't both sides actually lose? Yeah, no question. I mean, I'm just putting out an article in my free newsletter um, next week that shows that industrial production around the world is going down except for the U.S., and trade exports are going down for everybody, including the U.S. Yes, everybody loses in a trade war. The Great Depression saw a trade war. The, great, the, the late 20s bubble and the Great Depression that followed it saw the same trends as today. Oh, we were having strong immigration. We decided we don't want any more of these crazy people. So they started curbing immigration, and then they started creating tariffs and trade wars that just compounded on each other, and, every, and, it, and it was a loose for everything. So we got the same thing. Top of a bubble, too many immigrants come in from people's point of view, even though the immigrants are very good for our demographics, and the only reason we're doing as well as we're doing. Um, and But now we're having trade wars, and, and that's exactly what happened in late 29 as well, and helped facilitate the Great Depression. It would have happened anyway because of the extremes of the bubbles, because of the demographic trends were going down in the 30s, like they're down today. Uh, so it would have happened anyway, but these, these things just make it worse. But the difference is China has a long-term strategy. They're, they think decades in advance. And in fact, they think too much in the future, and they've overbuilt way too much, which is going to really hit them hard when the world goes down. But they think long-term, and, and they are willing to take pain uh, for that long-term goal to be number one uh, economy in the world, and, and they are going to eventually be that uh, until India overtakes them at some point. So, so they have a different view. We um, um, import from them three to four times what they import from us. So yes, this trade war hurts them more than us, and their statistics in trade and industrial production are going down faster than us in the rest of the world. So yes, it hurts them more, but China is willing to take that pain, so I don't think they're going to give in too much. And if, they, if we do get a, a, a deal here, I don't think it's going to last more than a year or two. And when things go down in the economy, everybody's going to get more protectionist, just like they did in the 30s. You know, it's remarkable how history tends to repeat itself. And in your book, uh, Zero Hour, and we've got about three minutes left in this segment, uh, you talk a lot about cycles and how, how predictable they are. And that's really evidence that history repeats itself. Can you fill the listeners in as to, you know, a bit about what's in the book? Yeah, you know, you know, what I learned the most, Dennis, was studying scientists. Not Economists are terrible uh, forecasters, terrible cycles. They don't even understand cycles. Everybody just wants the economy to get better than go to heaven. Everybody wants to get in this plateau of prosperity like the late 20s and think it can last. And that's why bubbles always burst, because people think that way. We have demographic cycles about every 40 years, generations spend and then don't. We have geopolitical cycles every 35 years. It was positive from 83 to 2000. And, of course, 9-11 cents. Nothing but terrorism, nothing but civil wars. Now we got white supremacists causing terrorism, but that cycle's about the bottom. And, and, and we have boom bust cycles every 10 years. So we, there's four key cycles. It's taken me 30. I started with the demographic cycles that are the most projectable and the most powerful technology cycles, 45 year clock. And that's the big cycle right now. This bubble is part of every two technology cycles. Every 90 years, you get a super bubble like this, like 1929, like 1836 to 37. Those are the two biggest bubbles in history and the biggest resets and depressions to follow. And that's a 45-year that's a cycle 
doubling every 90 years. And, and so cycles are incredibly predictable. And, and people don't pay attention to cycles because people don't like the concept that every up cycle has a down cycle. So people tend to ignore cycles and say, why don't we just believe we're going to get better, 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 better than go to heaven? That's the way people forecast the future. So people are bad at forecasting and economists are even worse. We just look at obvious stuff. And in the, the hard part about cycles, Dennis, just to wrap up here, is just to pick which ones are important. It's taken me 30 years to pull together four cycles. And that's what scientists have for long-term climate. They've got three long-term cycles in a hierarchy, and they can predict weather for so far out you wouldn't believe it and, and have been incredibly accurate. That's what we do. We just predict the cycles that impact your life, your business, your family, your investments over the rest of your lifetime. That's what we do, and it's not that hard once you isolate the important cycles. That was the hard part. Well, that is perfect timing as well for the end of this segment. We're chatting today with Mr. Harry Dent. Uh, the clock tells us we are out of time for this segment, but the good news is Harry will stay with us and join us after the break. If you just joined us, get Harry's free newsletter at harrydenton.com. We'll be back after these words. Stay with us. Dennis Tubergen here, host of the Retirement Lifestyle Advocates radio program. Thank you for listening. I'd like to invite you to take advantage of a free resource that we have for our listeners. It's a weekly market and economic update that we call Portfolio Watch. It's a free newsletter delivered by email every Monday at market close. In it, we analyze market activity and give you a unique perspective on current economic conditions. To get the weekly Portfolio Watch report delivered to you each week free, just visit rla.yourportfoliowatch.com. That's rla.portfoliowatch.com. In Portfolio Watch, we track market and economic activity every week and monitor and update our forecast for your money. The website again, rla.yourportfoliowatch.com to get your free subscription. The website again, rla.yourportfoliowatch.com. Welcome back to RLA Radio. I'm your host, Dennis Tubergen. Joining me today uh, from actually his home in Puerto Rico, Mr. Harry Dent. Uh, Harry is a best-selling author many times over. His most recent book is Zero Hour. If you have not had a chance to pick it up and read it yet, I would encourage you to do that. And uh, Harry's offering all the listeners today uh, his free newsletter, which is available by visiting harrydent.com. So, Harry, maybe just to pick up where we left off in the last segment, you talked about the fact that uh, all this stimulus and the tax cuts and corporations buying back their own stock, you're, you're short-term bullish on stocks, but you think it's the last big move up before the bubble bursts. What does the bubble bursting look like, and how might our listeners be affected? Well, first of all, I mean, I, you know, I – talked about you know cycles and i've isolated the most important cycles i got you know late 80s right off demographics for boom generation cycles and then inflation two things i can predict the demographics way into the future but other cycles technology geopolitical and then boom bust cycles every decade but the you know the 
bubbles. I've had to study the last several years bubbles because we're in a bubble era like the Roaring Twenties. And bubbles are totally predictable. They, they, they're just like the male orgasm chart by, by Masters and Johnson. It's exactly like I use that as my pattern to, to look at markets and say if it's in a bubble or not. And if it looks like a bubble, walks like a bubble, quacks like a bubble, it's a bubble, damn it. And everybody always says in a bubble, oh, this isn't a bubble because I don't care what causes it, supply or demand. Limited supply or excess demand, like from massive baby boom buying and unprecedented numbers or uh, unprecedented stimulus by governments just printing money. Of course, that's going to stimulate the economy short term and cause bubbles. Bubbles have a pattern. And when bubbles start, the final wave is the steepest. We're in that wave since Trump got elected in late 2016. This is the final orgasmic phase. And when it bursts, one thing, first thing I learned about bubbles when I really dug into them, the first burst is dramatic. It will go down 40. The average for the last seven stock bubbles in the last 100 years, 42% crash in the first 2.6 months, anywhere from 49% in 29 and 2.3 months to 41% in 2.8 months in, in early 2000 when the tech bubble burst. But that, that's what you expect. So when this thing bursts, it's going to be very obvious and it's going to be too late. So every time stocks kind of bubble up like they did in January of 2018, I'm looking at the correction right from the beginning and saying, is this looking like a 42% crash in 2.6 months or is it just looking like a 10 to 20% correction? And the last two have looked like corrections. So we told our people, nope, this is not it. I know everybody thinks the bubble's finally bursting. I wish it would so we get it over with and, and get back to normal, but it's not. And, and, and so this, uh, I think we're in the first, we've just seen the first wave up of the final thrust, which will be the most dramatic. I'm projecting a Dow of 33,000 by late this year, early next year in this final phase of the bubble. Um, I'm predicting a NASDAQ near 10,000. And so this is going to be dramatic. And we've been telling people since December, you know, buy. And now I think we're due for a correction now that we're testing the highs again. And then pretty soon after that, we're going to blow up, blow through new highs by, by by the summer and, and be heading straight up. So so right now, where do you be? You'd be in the best sectors. That means the tech stocks will roar and lead again, the FANG stocks that, that have been leading this bubble and the aging baby boom sectors, things like cruise ships and pharmaceuticals and vitamins and things people spend money on in old age. Nursing homes are just going to be the, the strongest sector uh, for decades to come. So you want to be in the strong sectors, but this is not going to last long. I mean, this is only till late this year, let's say roughly. And the closer we get to NASDAQ 10,000, the closer you should be to pulling the damn plug on this thing. Because when it happens, remember, first crash is going to be 40 some percent in a matter of months. And then the whole bubble burst tends to be 70 to 90 percent. This one's going to be on the high side because it's so extreme. 80 to 90 percent, like the early 30s crash, that takes two and a half to three years. So I think between 2020 and 22 is the danger period for the stock market. Real estate will take longer to go down like it did 2006 to 2012 instead of stocks just 2008 and early 2009. And there's going to be nowhere to hide. So some people say, oh, well, well stockbrokers say, well, that's all right. We got you diversified. No, diversification is worth nothing. When a bubble like this bursts, because everything goes down except for the highest quality bonds, the 10 to 30 year treasuries, 
the AAA corporates that are not going to default no matter what. Coca-Cola and Microsoft are not going to default in their bonds. That's what you want to hold. Those bonds are the flight to safety. Gold and silver are not, as they were not in the 2008 crash. Commodities are part of the bubble bursting, too. Stocks and real estate. Everything goes down. The safe haven is the U.S. dollar in, in the currency world and the highest quality bonds in the best countries, you know, whether it be U.S. or, you know, U.K. or Sweden or Australia or whatever. I'm getting ready to go lecture again. They're, they're the favored country in the world. So it's a very unusual time. It's, it's a time I hate to say it because most of the time financial advisors are right. You don't have to dodge corrections and people are horrible at it anyway. Stay with the market, buy more in corrections. But this is not a correction to sit sit through. This is not a correction initially to buy into. This is going to be the crash of a lifetime. And on the backside of that, what I call the sale of a lifetime to pick up financial assets at the lowest price you will ever, ever see or your kids or grandkids will ever see. So, Harry, it sounds like, you know, because we, it's it's really tough to pick exactly when something will top. Um, sounds like you're saying that, you know, if you're retired, if you're going to be using your assets, that, you know, holding money in cash or starting to move in that direction might not be a bad idea. Is that your view? Yeah, yeah. Again, that's the classic phrase, cash is king. And I, but I like, instead of cash, I like high-quality financial assets, high-quality long-term bonds, because there's one sector that likes deflation, falling inflation or deflation, and that is high-quality bonds. Because low-quality bonds default in a, in a deflationary crisis or a depression. High-quality bonds benefit from falling interest rates long-term and short-term, but especially long-term. Interest rates did nothing but fall from 1930 to 1941 in the worst depression in history when stocks got hit 90, 89% worse in real estate and commodities, everything up and down volatile for the whole decade that was the one sweet spot high quality bonds doubled in value and paid you better dividends than stocks at the same time that's where you want to be cash or high quality bonds and that's it there is no diversification other than that i mean most most corrections you know the tech bubble burst but even the 70s long-term downturn in stocks for 14 years you could have been diversified in Japan, emerging markets, and, and, and commodities and stuff, and you'd have done, done all right while, in general, stocks and bonds went down in value because of inflation and recession. But this is not the case here. You have to protect your capital, number one, and then look to rebuy. So cash is king because that cash does not go down in value when financial assets do. And then you take that cash or high-quality bonds you convert to cash, and then you buy the best stocks in real estate. You don't buy Omaha real estate. You don't buy some crappy stock. You buy the leading stocks like Apple or Amazon. You buy Manhattan or downtown San Francisco or Singapore or Sydney. You buy the best real estate because it'll come back the strongest, but only after the crash. And the best stuff, the best real estate, and guess what? The FANG stock, the best stock, will go down the most like the best stocks did from 1929 to 32. 89% for auto stocks, uh, 93% for auto stocks, 89% for the Dow. Blue chip stock. So, Harry, in the time we have left, um, which is a little over a minute, uh, do you expect real estate's going to uh, have a repeat performance as well as to what it did from 2006 to 2008? Yes, this is the third major stock bubble, and it'll be the last. This is the second 
real estate bubble in the U.S. will be the last, and real estate will go down at least to where it did in 2012 and probably a bit lower. So real estate, I think, will crash a bit more this time. It will not go down as much as stocks. Like, say, real estate went down 34% last time, probably goes down 40 to 50 this time. That's a lot for real estate because real estate – typically has debt and mortgages against it, commercial or personal, and, and therefore it makes it much more painful. Uh, so real estate, yes, will be as bad or worse than last time. Stocks will be way worse than last time. Commodities already down 70% at worst will be down 80 or 90 before it's over. All right. Well, we're going to have to leave it there. Our guest today has been Mr. Harry Dent. Uh, if you're just joining us, uh, Harry has offered his free newsletter to the listeners today. You can get it by visiting harrydent.com, and I'd encourage you to read his most recent book titled Zero Hour. Harry, thanks for joining us today. Love to have you back later this year. Okay, and congratulations on your new book, Dennis. Thanks, Harry. We'll be back after these words. Dennis Tubergen here, host of the Retirement Lifestyle Advocates radio program. Thank you for listening. I'd like to invite you to take advantage of a free resource that we have for our listeners. It's a weekly market and economic update that we call Portfolio Watch. It's a free newsletter delivered by email every Monday at market close. In it, we analyze market activity and give you a unique perspective on current economic conditions. To get the weekly Portfolio Watch report delivered to you each week free, just visit rla.yourportfoliowatch.com. That's rla.portfoliowatch.com. In Portfolio Watch, we track market and economic activity every week and monitor and update our forecast for your money. The website again, rla.yourportfoliowatch.com to get your free subscription. The website again, rla.yourportfoliowatch.com. I am Dennis Tuberg, and you are listening to RLA Radio. Glad you decided to tune in today. Hey, in the first segment of today's program, I started to talk about what is normal as far as interest rates are concerned. In this segment, I want to continue that discussion, but I also want to share with you how I believe your savings, your nest egg, the money you have in a 401k or an IRA might be impacted and give you some thoughts to consider. If you were with me for the first segment of today's program, I pointed out that there's really a couple different ways that money is created in our financial system. One, because of the way banking works, because of the reserve requirements of banks. As people borrow money and money moves, more money is created. So one of the ways money creation occurs is by having interest rates at low levels. Now, after the financial crisis, as interest rates were reduced to near zero and the policymakers found that didn't work, they resorted to simply creating money out of thin air and using that money to buy assets from banks. And that whole process was referred to as quantitative easing. Now, history teaches us that whenever money printing policies are pursued, the policymakers in charge 
reassure the populace by telling them this extreme action is temporary and will only continue for a short time. We're only going to print money until we grow our way out of this problem. We're only going to print money until something happens. And there are many, many historical examples of this. History also teaches us that these reassurances turn out to be wrong because once money printing starts, historically speaking, it almost always continues. Now, John Rabino, who many of you may recognize as a guest we had on the program earlier this year in January, recently wrote a piece that was extremely interesting and very compelling on this very topic. And he notes that the European Central Bank, which is obviously the Central Bank of Europe, the Bank of Japan, which is the Central Bank of Japan, and the Federal Reserve which is the central bank of the United States, all three of these major world banks, after stating that they were going to raise interest rates to a more normal level last year, have now done a complete 180-degree turn on monetary policy. In other words, as history teaches us, the easy money policies will continue. Now let me give you just a few quick before and after stories, as noted by Mr. Rabino in his article. There's a story from the Associated Press in September of, 19, uh, September of 2018, rather, and I'm quoting from the article, the European Central Bank is expected to ratchet back its stimulus efforts again on Thursday as it gingerly phases out extraordinary support for the economy left over from the Great Recession. The bank's 25-member governing council is expected to cut its monthly bond purchase stimulus to 15 billion euros a month from 30 billion a month on the way to ending the purchase, purchases at the end of the year. Now, let me just put that in simple terms for you. The bank's governing council said we're going to quit creating 30 billion euros a month. We're going to start creating only... 15 billion euros a month, and by the end of the year, we're just going to stop. Now, before any of that happened, here's a story from WSWS. And again, I quote, The European Central Bank has reversed its policy of slight monetary tightening and announced a new stimulus package in the face of data, which show a sharp downturn in the growth in the eurozone. This was a unanimous decision. And the decision came just three months after they said they were going to quit creating money. And now they say they have to continue creating money. Now let's look at Japan. As many of you know, Japan has pioneered negative interest rates. And they have been creating money to buy not only government bonds, but other assets as well. They've been very aggressive. In 2018, this is from a Nikkei Asia article, the governor of the Bank of Japan, a gentleman by the name of Mr. Kuroda, mentioned the concept of the reversal interest rate in a speech he gave in Zurich in November of 2018. 
Now, this reversal interest rate refers to the process whereby excessively low interest rates hurt the banking center, sector. rather. And in this case, the effects of monetary easing or money printing could reverse and become contractionary. So, Mr. Kuroda said, we're going to cut back on the amount of money that we're creating. It took one month, and he changed his mind. This from another Nikkei article. Governor Kuroda has moved to quell recent market speculation the central bank will tighten monetary taps, saying it will continue its monetary easing measures in the light of weak inflation. So Mr. Kuroda said, what is important is for us to continue our monetary easing with persistence, creating an environment where our 2% inflation target can be achieved and maintained in a stable manner. Bottom line is this, despite all this money creation, because of the debt levels that exist in Japan, the overriding economic force is deflation. So here we have the European Central Bank that says we're going to stop or ease up on the money creation, and they reversed course. The Bank of Japan did the same thing, and then the Fed, the U.S. Central Bank, followed suit. The current Fed chair, Mr. Jerome Powell, was quoted in October in the Wall Street Journal as saying he believed the U.S. economy was a long way from neutral, and what he meant by that was Neutral is a point where interest rates are neither spurring nor slowing economic growth. So he said we're going to start to raise interest rates, which again, if you listen to the first segment of today's program, means that money creation will slow. However, it took only a couple months and Mr. Powell followed the lead of the European Central Bank and the Bank of Japan and essentially took it all back. Again, from the Wall Street Journal in January, after the stock market started to correct significantly, and this is a quote from the article, by Wednesday morning, the, chan the chances implied by the futures market of any rate increase over the course of 2019 had shriveled to barely 25%. Now, what does all this mean? Well, Mr. Rubino makes a couple of really good points, and then I'll get to what it probably means for you. Here we are 10 years into an expansion. The official unemployment rate is well below 5%. The officially reported inflation at the central bank target of 2%. And the global economy is still too fragile to handle normal interest rates. Mr. Rubino says the structural weakness that implies is absolutely terrifying. That's because when money printing is pursued as a policy response, history teaches us it rarely stops. Because money printing does not, does not solve a structural weakness problem, it simply masks the problem and hides the symptoms for a while. Mr. Rubino says if central banks can't normalize monetary policy now, they'll never be able to. History certainly seems to teach us that. And Mr. Rubino says, let that sink in. The old conception of monetary policy is over for the remaining life of the current global financial system. And when it comes to money printing, 
Typically, it requires more of it as time passes to achieve a watered-down or diluted, diluted result. So what should you do? Well, it seems that the writing is on the wall. It seems that certainly as this continues, it's prudent for you to consider adding tangible assets to your portfolio. We have some resources available at retirementlifestyleadvocates.com. You can visit the resources section of the website and learn more. We also host educational events here in uh, the area. Uh, you can get more information at retirementlifestyleadvocates.com as well. That's the program for this week. Hope you got something you can use. <music> 